Well, good morning. I can walk everywhere. How do you guys, what? I could come out and do like a quick, uh, how you doing? Okay, yeah, no, let's not. Let's just keep it stationary. I'm going to hang out right here. Um, announcements for this morning. Many of you know next Sunday is Halloween, and um, we're having Kids Church next door. You guys, I've been there the last few weeks, and it is so, so fun. Love pouring into kids again, and just... Um, there's just something really special about watching the way that kids process the world and view the world and how we get to just kind of dive into that together is a real treat. So next Sunday, with it being Halloween, we are inviting kids to come in costume if they would like to. Um, adults, if your costumes are appropriate, I mean, what is it about Halloween that's like, make sure it's really short and tight? Yeah? <laughs> You hear me on that? Okay, inappropriate things to keep be talking about in church, but here we are. If your costume's appropriate and it's not gonna freak someone out, and you just really want to have a place to go with that, come as you are, however you would like to be, and we will be excited to have you. So, um, and then also I have something super exciting to tell you, ladies. So guys, you've probably already tuned me out. Go with that. Um, but maybe you want to tune in because you want to encourage your wife to go to this. On Saturday, November 20th, um, I'm inviting ladies to come into this space here. And we are going to spend a day um, doing something called the IF Gathering. Now, this is a conference that happened. It happens every year since 2014 is when it began. And the idea behind this conference and its founder was, if we believe that God is real, how does that change the way that we live? And so that's what the word if comes from. So this gathering is kind of a, a set of speakers that come and speak about something that's relevant to our time and our place and the current life that we're living. And then we get to sit around tables afterwards and talk about that together. And so it will be two things. Number one, it'll just be kind of soul-filling, but it'll also be connective in nature. And so you will get to know some different ladies. You'll be sitting at tables with women that you've not met yet, but also some that you know really well. And um, so we're just really excited about that event and what that might do. And our hope is that it would spur us on to continuing gathering in homes around tables and talking about this reality that if God is real, what does that mean for our lives? So I have already watched several of the talks, and I'm really, really excited about it. So we're going to have more details for you, how you sign up, is there food provided, all the logistics later. But for now, we just want you to save the date on that. Um, if any of you have met Ashley Enriquez, um, who goes to Brookview and started coming to Brookview in COVID, um, this is her idea. And it's something that she came to Jason and I and said, hey, I'm kind of thinking about this. We were like, you go. How can we get behind you? And so she's really coordinating and organizing this event. And I'm excited to just kind of come alongside of her and give, give it wings. So um, please... 
Mark your calendars for that, ladies. There won't be childcare for that, and that's where men, you come in, and hopefully you can lean into that, and maybe you could have, you know, daddy dates all over the place, all over Snohomish County, dads and kids. So, um, And then the last announcement that I have is just to fill out your online communication card. If there's anything that you want to respond to with the announcements, if you know you want to come to the gathering and you would like to help with that in any way, of course, we're always looking for bodies to help with that kind of stuff because there are logistics. So um, your communication card is found at brookviewchurch.com and you click on contact us and it's the first thing that you'll see on the webpage there. That's all I got. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're going to go to a drive-thru right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts in drive-thru windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just going to take our stuff and we're going to pay for it. We'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them. Sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes. It's the nature of it. How's it going, sir? Would you like a gospel track today? Sorry? Gospel track today to save you from your sins? Oh, yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry? Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah? The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Like a gospel track today? Save you from your sins? How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track? No one's good, that's the problem. morning. Well, here we go with our third week in this series, Preaching the Gospel. And the main thrust of this series really has been asking the question, how do we, as followers of Jesus, engage our culture with the gospel? And for the first few weeks, we kind of took a step back from the sharing part of it and just asked the question, what is the gospel? Uh, When Jesus taught about the good news, we looked at week one, the euangelion in Greek. What did he he mean by it? What was he inviting people into? When Jesus preached the gospel, what did it sound like? 
And so we spent a couple of weeks, really the first two weeks of this, asking what was the gospel that Jesus himself preached? Which matters because if you don't start with the gospel Jesus preached, we can easily end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, how we think about that matters, right? Right? Yes, okay, you're with me? So, so last week we looked at kind of four different, very popular summaries of the gospel in America and American culture. Um, the four American gospels, we looked at John, the John 3.16 gospel, the reformed gospel, the prosperity gospel, and the social gospel. And these really are the four most common approaches to answer the question, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What, what is the good news of Jesus? Like, what is the gospel? And we saw goodness and truth in all four, but here was the really unexpected thing. You can do all four without following Jesus, which seems a bit strange, don't you think? Don't you think? Okay, so I think it's strange. So the major takeaway was simply this. If our gospel does not include active apprenticeship to Jesus, it is not the gospel of Jesus. I mean, central to what it is to be a Christian is following Jesus. We, we learn to be with him. We learn how to be with him, right? So that we can become like him. And then we can go into the world and do what he would do if he were us. But for some reason, in many contexts, the following Jesus part is kind of viewed as like an optional add-on for those who are, quote, into it. Now, is it me or is it odd to be making Christians who don't follow Jesus? So for the first two weeks, we've been asking the question, well, what is the gospel? And today, I want to shift gears as we begin to move more into like the sharing of the gospel. Because our culture, this is what's so tricky, our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. I mean, it, it isn't just that people feel like, well, yeah, okay, but it's not really for me. It's that they actually are beginning to see Christianity as immoral, as a hindrance to human flourishing, as a threat to what's good for society. So how do we share the gospel of Jesus with a culture that increasingly perceives it to be a threat? Well, I want to introduce you guys to one of the great ones of the way of Jesus. Her name was Perpetua. And she was born in 182 AD to a wealthy family in Carthage, which is in the tip of North Africa, right on the Mediterranean. And Perpetua was, was one of many in the second century who became a Christiani in Latin. In other words, a Christian, a Christ follower, or to be literal, a little Christ. When she was 22 years old, just after her wedding and having her first baby, a state-sanctioned genocide of Christians broke out across the Roman Empire and the entire Mediterranean world under Roman Emperor Septimius Severus. And it was bloody and lethal. Perpetua was arrested and put in jail, likely to make an example of a woman from a prominent family. And all she had to do to go back to her husband and her baby and her life was simply recant her claim that Jesus was Lord, then pinch a little incense on the altar and say instead, Caesar is Lord. That's it. 
the Holy Spirit moving? What's happening? <laughs> Let there be light. Um, so that's it. That's all she had to do. Recant her, her and, and name Caesar as Lord. Now her father begged her, pleaded with her to recant. He said, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. But Perpetua kept saying over and over to the Roman magistrate, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And in prison, she had a vision in the middle of the night. And in the vision, there was a ladder reaching up to heaven with a serpent guarding the base. And in her vision, she moved past the serpent up the ladder, reaching the top where there was this beautiful, massive garden. In the center of the garden was a tall, gray-haired man dressed like a shepherd, surrounded by thousands of men, women, and children dressed in white. She woke up. Well, he, and he gave her food and said, welcome, my child. She woke up and realized she was going to die. But from that moment on, she was, she was full of peace. The Acts of the Christian Martyrs, a, a third century writing, tells her story like this. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater joyfully as though they were going to heaven, with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step. She began to sing a psalm. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Perpetua made the ultimate choice, not just between, like, between life and death, but between allegiance to Jesus and, and allegiance to what Jesus called the world, which goes by many names down through history. Perpetua was one of thousands upon thousands. We actually don't know how many. Some historians argue upwards of millions of followers of Jesus who were brutally murdered in the first three centuries of the church. And this leads, I think, to an obvious question, which is, why was being a Christian a crime? I mean, after all, up until the fourth century, Christians were utterly nonviolent. So they, they weren't engaging in any kind of armed revolution. The, the scriptures told them to honor the emperor. They paid their taxes faithfully. They made all kinds of innovative contributions to the common good of society. They were the first group to create like a welfare net for the poor. They were the first ever to start hospitals in human history. They, and so why were they such a threat to the Roman Empire? Well, Gerald Sitzer, a professor from Whitworth University over in Spokane, in his book, Water from a Deep Well, identifies four reasons that Christians were persecuted. Now, this, these are, I'm going to lay these out in his language. This is his language, not mine. Number one, pagans viewed Christians with suspicion because they considered Christianity a strange and threatening foreign cult. So as a general rule, 
Romans didn't like anything that wasn't Roman. The second century Roman writer uh, and historian Tacitus called the way, which is, was like the early name for Christianity, before it was called Christianity, it was just called the way. And Tacitus blasted this, the, the way, as a dangerous superstition, he called it. And it was dangerous because in the Roman worldview, if you don't honor the gods of the like Roman Greco, Greco-Roman pantheon, then they will be provoked to anger and vengeance and they will react and they will bring down ruin upon your city or even the entire empire. So if things aren't going well in your city or in the empire, it must be because the gods are angry. And what in the Roman context might be making the gods angry? Well, Roman people refusing to worship the gods, of course. Followers of the way were actually accused of being atheists because they refused to worship the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. And the followers of the way were misunderstood on many levels. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus in communion. They were accused of incest because they called each other brother and sister. They were accused of having raging orgies because they called their gathering the love feast. Which in the Romans defense, you guys, that does sound kind of kinky, right? So we've updated it to church. But you know, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, maybe, maybe this generation would respond better if we called it the love feast. I... So, so the followers of Jesus were terribly misunderstood. The, the rumors were just flying around about them. And even so, the Romans were probably right about at least one thing. They were right to see the way as a threat because it was a threat to the traditional spirituality of the empire. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you. I don't know anyone who still worships Jupiter or Zeus or Neptune or Poseidon. Okay. Number two, second reason. Christians practiced a way of life that passed implicit judgment on Roman society. So they refused to, to go, even go into the, the Greco-Roman temples of the gods and goddesses, which it turns out was where most of business and social life happened. They refused to participate in the Roman games in the arena or go to the Roman theaters. Um, both included worship of the Romans go- Roman gods. That was just part of what happened when you went there. So they refused to partake. And again, Tacitus, the Roman historian, called Christ- Christians haters of humankind because they just flat refused to participate in so many of the Roman cultural norms. Followers of the way were also radically different in stuff like their sexuality in that their sexual desire was channeled into a lifelong covenant of marriage. And that and all many, many more differences did not go over well among the Romans. But when you think about it, like this is just human nature, to villainize people who refuse to participate in our behavior and our values. Right? When exposed to someone with a higher moral standard, or or as we would say, holiness, most of us will go one of two ways. Either we will see beauty in their way of living and we will be drawn into the the orbit of it, 
Or because we don't want to feel bad and we don't want to change, then we just flat out reject their moral vision. And often that comes with anger and criticism and resentment and even hostility. And so when encountering people from the way, the Romans had extreme reactions in both directions. All right, number three. Another reason that they they saw it as a threat is Christian allegiance to Jesus as Lord threatened Rome's hegemony. You guys all know what I mean by that, right? I didn't either, so uh, I had to look that up. It means like influence of one nation or group over other nations or groups. Again, this is his language, not mine. But in in Rome, a, a wide array of religions were not only tolerated, they were celebrated as long as they served the interests of the empire. If not, then they were perceived as dangerous. The followers of the way were, were definitely a threat to the empire because just follow the logic. I mean, just follow this. If Jesus and his kingdom are the hope of the world, then Caesar and his empire are not. Here's Gerald Sitzer on Rome's religious policy. He said, in short, Rome tolerated religious diversity as long as the real religion of Rome was honored, which was Rome itself. So for Christians, their ultimate allegiance would always be to Jesus, and this did not sit well with Caesar and the rest of Rome. Number four, Christians viewed their faith as ultimate, as exclusively true, which threatened the popular pluralism of the day. Does that sound at all familiar? Like, you have your truth, I have mine. Which, when you think about it, doesn't even make sense. Uh, But that's pluralism. And in in the world of pluralism, like when everything is true, then nothing is ultimately true, right? But for followers of Jesus, he was the way and the truth and the life. And, And Jupiter and Zeus were not. And that, that did not sit well with the Romans. So for all of those reasons and many, many more, followers of the way were slaughtered in mass. They were fed to wild beasts. They were cut down by gladiators. They were burned alive in public and on and on and on. And yet, and here's the point that I'm coming to. And yet, the movement of this thing called the way in that context just picked up steam. It grew and grew and grew like crazy. And that raises another, I think, obvious question. Why would so many people, like within the Roman Empire, join this new community that followed Jesus, knowing it would likely cause them pain, suffering, and possibly death? What, what was it about this gospel, this Jesus, this, this new community of the way that made hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, if not more, actually choose death with Jesus over life with Rome? Well, one answer is that it was the uniqueness of the way, of their way of life together as a community. It was just deeply compelling. Like it was their worldview, their their community, their life together, the way that, that love was lived among them and then flowing out of them to everybody around them. The, the empire had never seen anything remotely close to it. A number of historians now argue that it really wasn't like relevance and relatability that did the trick in the Roman Empire for the Christians. 
that this new community wasn't attractive to the Romans because it was relevant to them. But it, was because the Roman, it wasn't because Roman people could like easily relate to it. It was actually exactly the opposite. It was their distinctiveness and their difference that got people's attention. This community held a whole new vision of human flourishing. Like for some, their, their vision and their way of life and the gospel message, it was, they, they found it to be water for their thirsty souls. They really did. And they, so they just dove on into this thing head first. They literally sacrificed their lives to be a part of it. But I think there was something even deeper going on. I'm convinced that these early Christiani were experiencing something real, like the risen Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. They authentically experienced life in the kingdom of God and they were willing to die a grisly death rather than give up life in the kingdom of God with Jesus. They had to pick between life with Jesus in the kingdom and death and life in the Roman Empire and like live long and prosper. Right? They chose Jesus time after time after time because whatever it was that they were experiencing with him was better than anything the Roman Empire had on offer. Now today, followers of Jesus are still killed for their faith. It's easy for us to forget that, living in the human rights protection of America. But as many as 150,000 Christians are killed every year around the world. Mostly in, mostly in the Muslim world, but not exclusively, like also in North Korea and China and other places. Now in our culture, we don't face anywhere near that same degree of, of opposition, right? But right now, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm sensing. There is a rising hostility in our culture. Like, do you guys feel that? The way of Jesus isn't viewed in the same light that it was 10, 10, 20, 30 years ago at all. Many see the followers of Jesus now as like the problem in society. Now for us in America, this is kind of new, but as far as Christianity goes in the history of the world, it's not new at all. And being forced to choose between culture and Jesus is not completely bad. I mean, like, what if there is some, some kind of good news in all of this? What if, and it's as hard as this is for me to even say or, or to swallow, but what if there's a rich gift waiting for us in, right within this new cultural moment? What if this rising hostility can serve to deepen and enrich our faith? What if it, it kind of forces us to choose and to rely on God? What if, it, what if it serves to knit us together as, as family and draws us into him? And, and what, if we experiencing, what if we experience something so deep and, and so real, like something beyond? What if it takes us from like surface level faith to, to much deeper depths? The, the idea that, that we can live the way of Jesus and not make hard choices that is the Christianity that many of us have been living in in a culture that's been very friendly to it. But really, that was never what Jesus was offering in the beginning. I mean, Jesus said, like, if we go all in with Jesus, if we really do go all in with Jesus, 
there are going to be some people that don't like it. Jesus said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. In other words, if, if you're following Jesus, like, like really following Jesus, and everybody likes what you're doing, you should ask, what am I doing wrong? He also said, blessed are you when, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, I, just, I do want to say, if people say negative stuff about you, it might have nothing to do with Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, you might just be an idiot. Um, so you can't just like go around being a jerk to everybody and then be like, well, there it is, persecution. Right? You must be proud, Lord. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are you when you're mistreated because of, of Jesus. Now, as counterintuitive as it sounds, all the great ones of the way attest there is a hidden blessing within persecution. Whether it's physical or, or emotional persecution, there's a hidden blessing. It's like something happens where, where we, we actually get a deeper experience with Jesus when we get a little taste of it or a large taste of it. And even if our taste of it is really small and mild, even if it's small, if we experience just a skosh of what he underwent to love us, something beautiful happens. But if we never taste that, if we live in a culture where we don't have to make any choices, we never taste that, we will sadly miss out on a certain level of intimacy with him. Um, John Mark Comer, my daughter Kate's pastor in Portland. John Mark Comer says it like this. He said, I think this is, and, and, and by the way, I, I think this is so good and so true. He says, if the point of life is not pleasure, it's not happiness, it's not to feel good all the time, it's not a career that is up and to the right, it's not to be thought of as cool or well-dressed or sophisticated or enlightened, but if rather it is to deepen our intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit through surrender, if it's the healing and the formation of our soul, our whole person, into people of agape, of self-giving love, if the greatest joy there is in the universe is the creator of all that is, God himself, then Jesus' logic is perfectly sound. When people revile you, make fun of you, say nasty things about you, demote you or whatever, rejoice and be glad. Now, I think that's really, really right on, but it leaves us with the question, how do we preach the gospel to a culture that actually sees it as a threat? And I want us to turn to the words of, of Peter. He was writing to the Christians all across the Roman Empire who were facing severe persecution. And I just want to real quickly run through verse by verse what he said to them. Here's what Peter said to them, and this is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And I love the way he starts this, dear friends, right, with a heart that is just like pastoral, just one of love. Dear friends, I urge you. And he calls out the best in his brothers and sisters all across the empire. He reminds them that, that as, as people living in Rome, they are foreigners. They are, they are exiles. 
He's reminding them and us that our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, not any particular nation state. And this is even harder for some of us to swallow, but our our primary family identity is in the family of God, not in, in a particular ethnicity or family of origin. Now, that doesn't erase our ethnicity or our nationality at all. It doesn't erase the fact that I am a Huguenin and I am an American. But what it does is it puts that in its proper place below God and his family. Followers of Jesus were were called, they were actually called a new race by their Roman critics because arguably for the first time in human history, there was a movement like spiritual or otherwise that spread across the human boundaries of of tribe and tongue and nation. Like people from every ethnicity and tongue became family together. Citizens of a whole different kingdom where the king is really more like a father and a friend. So Peter urges the family to, to not just to not just fall into the ways of the world or the culture around them, but instead to embody the values and the way of their, of their forever home. Peter continues. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The word pagans, by the way, is kind of a cringy word, isn't it, in our culture? It's not intended to be derogatory at all. It, it actually was the self-title of people who worshiped the Roman gods. It's, it's what they called themselves. So Peter says, he says, go and, and live good lives among people, among people who don't believe like you. Now, notice that word, among. The idea is living like shoulder to shoulder, not to isolate in some kind of like holy huddle. We are to live our lives among non-believers of all kinds that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. Though initially, they may, accuse, they may accuse you, Peter says, of doing wrong. They're not gonna get it right away. I mean, for them, it was cannibalism, right? Or incest. Or when Rome falls in a battle, they blame your lack of worship toward Jupiter. But for us, Though initially they may, may think you're judgmental or you're, you're arrogant or they might assume that you're filled with hate toward certain groups of people, when they actually watch you live your life day in and day out, day in and day out, again and again, some will actually realize, you know what, I was totally wrong. And they will glorify God. When, when they see your good deeds, not notice that's not when they, when they hear your sermons, you know, it cannot just be what you say. They actually need to see how you live. Like in Brookview language, they need to see love lived. And not just like a random act of love here or there, you know, where we just sort of muster up the one thing a year. Like I did something loving one time last year. Like it needs to, they need to see it and they need to see it day after day after day at the office, in the neighborhood, at Thanksgiving, in the places that you actually live among them. Peter then gets a little more specific about how this looks in the Roman Empire. Now, brace yourself for this one. He writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
In other words, even when there are rulers who don't follow Jesus, authorities and governors, in Peter's language, who don't know Jesus, we are to follow the laws and submit unless it directly dishonors Jesus. Now listen, I don't want to get a bunch of emails. I'm just reading the Bible. And so I'm not going to like linger on this and go too long, and I'm not going to get all specific and prescriptive for exactly what this looks like. But if we are followers of Jesus, gang, we need to hear Peter's words here. This is the way of Jesus. And even in the context of the Roman Empire with horrific corruption, Peter implored his brothers and sisters to submit to authorities. In a world where Christ followers were accused of being bad for the nation, Peter goes on saying, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, they got a lot of misperceptions about you. Keep doing good and let them see it. Verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Yes, you're free to do all kinds of things, but be thoughtful in how you use your freedom. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, this whole passage, it sounds to me like Peter's basically, if you think of him as a musician, he's like riffing on a song that Jesus created, on the words of Jesus. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, how many times... This is Peter's writing decades later. How many times must the words of Jesus have just echoed in his mind? And now he's imploring his brothers and sisters facing atrocities that we can hardly even fathom all across the Roman Empire to live it. The call of Jesus isn't just a call to preach the good news. It is to become good news people. To embody the gospel of the kingdom of God. To embody it. To become people who are living joyfully in the kingdom of God with Jesus, right in the middle of whatever empire we we find ourselves in. The early Christians did this, and it changed the world. Like the way exploded from 120 hiding in a back room in Jerusalem to under the, the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, arguably the most influential movement in the history of the world. Michael Green, a famous scholar from Oxford in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, makes a profound point. He writes, I think this is awesome. He writes, 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their friends and family. Ordinary Christians, right? Not, Not Christian celebrities, not pastors like me on a stage, or evangelists like Billy Graham. Ordinary Christians, just explaining their life to their friends and their family who were asking, wait, why? Why, why, do, you, why do you do it that way? Why? 
I mean, their way of life was baffling, and yet it was beautiful. So people were like, why? why? Why do you as a man honor your wife like that? Nobody does that. Well, why do you refuse to cheat or, or lie or step on people to get ahead in your business? You could totally get away with it. So why? Why, why do you treat the, the servants in your house with such kindness? Why do, you, why do you give away so much money? Like why? 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 And here's a reality that's, that I think is hard for us to imagine um, in our context. It's still a, a, a reality, very common in the Middle East today, but, but by the second century of Christianity, by the time of Perpetua, many Christians made their worship gatherings a secret. So they would not like go out and invite their non-believing neighbors to, to church with them. Because if a non-Christian came in, they might come to faith in Jesus. They, they might join the community and, and come to love Jesus. That was a possibility. But they might also go and tell the imperial magistrate who would then raid the gathering and put everyone in prison. But that created a fascinating dynamic where non-Christians could not look at like a Christian worship service and be drawn to Jesus that way. All they could do was look at the lives of Christians that they were encountering on a daily basis, how they did family, how they did marriage, how they did friendship, what they were like at work, the level of integrity they, they lived with. And that was what drew them to Jesus by the droves. It was not like Christian worship events that attracted outsiders. They didn't have lights and sound and a really awesome faux brick wall, right? Some of you are like, that's faux? I know, it's good. It was not the Christian worship services that attracted outsiders. It was Christians that attracted them. It was their way of life together in community, their, their love for one another, their thick webbing of brother and sister like family life, their joy under suffering, their generosity, their sacrifice, right? Their love and serenity and wisdom and just perseverance. Now, the word used for this in the New Testament is the word witness. And Jesus famously used it in, in Acts chapter 1. It says, but you will receive power. Jesus was talking to the disciples before, before he left them for good. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's like, you guys are just gonna fan out across the planet, like all the way to the greater Seattle area, like this place across the ocean on another continent. And he's like, and you're gonna be my witnesses. Now think about that. What is the picture of that? Used as a noun, the word witness literally means someone who sees or experiences something important. Right? That's what it means. Used as a verb, so like to witness or to bear witness, it means to tell others about what you saw or experienced. You guys, I love that. That is so freeing. Here's why. It's freeing because we're not salespeople. We're witnesses. One of, okay. One of the worst experiences I ever had, maybe some of you can relate to this. I was in sales for one day. <laughs> uh, I was 19 and I took a year off of college to figure my life out. 
And uh, I, was, I was looking for any job that would just make a lot of money fast if that was possible. So I looked in the newspaper and I saw an advertisement and it was something like, looking for young enthusiastic people 18 plus. You can make $5,000 per week. No experience or education required. You guys, this was 92. That was a lot of money. You know, today it's still a lot of money. But the ad was kind of vague and, and mysterious. And so I was like, well, I've got to check that out. So I, I dressed up all nice and I drove to the address to put in my name and give them all my information. And when I got there, it was not what I expected. It was a strip club. <laughs> so that didn't really work out for me. Uh, so I went back, found another ad, also very mysterious, promising huge money. Um, I wasn't going to say this. I'm going to tell you guys this. So this is how young and dumb and stupid I was when I was 19. By the way, this is pre-Jesus for me. I was like, well, maybe they have a position for me. So I walked in and I gave them my name and my number. Shockingly, they never called me. <laughs> okay, so bummer. So I went home and I found, <laughs> I found another ad. And again, promising huge money and just like the ad was like, just show up at this address at 8 a.m. Um, and I'm like, okay, 8 a.m. It's probably not a strip club. Uh, no experience or education needed. And I was like, perfect, because I don't have any. So now I, I dressed up and I went to that place. And it was like this warehouse. And there were all these guys, mostly guys, a couple of girls sprinkled in, but they're all dressed super nice, suits and stuff. And here's, here's what it was. They wanted me to go out and sell bakeware. Like Pyrex. Okay, so like go door to door to businesses or, or, you know, that kind of thing. So I was like, okay. So I got in my, you know, we got in the car with my trainer and, and we headed out. And he wanted to go to like businesses. So we walked through, get this, we walked through door after door that read no soliciting. And then walked right into those places and solicited. And, and place after place, we were met with hostility and rejection. Um, we were just blowing past people's requests to not solicit and soliciting. And I was like, I was all sweaty and I was uncomfortable and just feeling like super sleazy. But I will say, you guys, <clears throat> we went into this one bank and like the timing was just right because there happened to be no customers in there. And you guys, I sold four sets of bakeware to four bank employees. One shot. My trainer was blown away. He said I had potential. <laughs> but it all just felt so sleazy. It just felt wrong. And also, it just was like, this is completely not me. Like, at all. So I just, you know, of course, didn't go back for the second day. But I discovered that sales just isn't, like, I'm just not wired that way at all. And, and my guess is that many of you, you're not either. Like, you do take no for an answer. And no soliciting signs would actually stop you. Because you, you, you hate selling stuff. So if you're not wired to be in sales, I have good news for you. As followers of Jesus, we're not in sales our, our job is to bear witness. Our job is not to sell people on the gospel. It's not to close the deal with the right, like, emotional technique. Our job is to bear witness 
to what we have seen and heard and what we have experienced with Jesus in the kingdom. In my online uh, group two weeks ago, I, I asked a couple of different questions. I got two different groups, and so it's like 24 different people. Um, it was, it, by the way, shout out to you guys. You're awesome. Some of you are in here. Whoa. The Spirit's speaking again. Okay. Um, so uh, in my online groups a couple weeks ago, I asked two different questions. Uh, first, I asked people's just emotional reaction to the sentence, go preach the gospel to the lost. And um, it was amazing to me that there was like one positive emotion. Like, and, like each group, one person had one positive emotion. There's not a lot of positivity around that concept. And one of the things that was universal, that just sort of came up for a lot of people, was this feeling of, this among many feelings, uh, this feeling of inadequacy. Man, people would just kind of over and over say, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to say everything just right. And, I, and I, I don't feel like I have, I can answer, really answer all, like all the questions. But I, I just want to say, if our job isn't to be salespeople, if our job is to bear witness, to be willing to share what we have experienced, what we have felt as we have followed Jesus, to share what Jesus means to us and why. That's, that's kind of a different picture. Like if, if, just so you know, if we have to be perfect with our theology and, and know the Bible like a Bible scholar, and if we have to be equipped to be able to answer every kind of question, we will never be equipped to share the gospel with the people that we love. And of course, as we grow and mature, that stuff will grow too. It needs to, it should. But no matter how mature you happen to be in this moment in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you follow him for a reason. There are reasons that you have chosen to follow him. It means you have a story. It means you have experiences. It means you have feelings. And it means you can bear witness to those to other people. We are to bear witnesses in both deed and word. So not just as individuals, and this is the cool part of being family together, but in our life together as community. Some people will be drawn into our witness the way a person wandering in the dark is drawn toward light, and others will end up going the opposite direction. Um, Mortimer Arias, a Bolivian scholar who did ministry under communist persecution, put it this way, he said, the kingdom of God is God's new order. Since its manifestation in Jesus Christ, human orders now belong to the old order. Precisely because the new order of God is a threat to any established order, the arrival of the kingdom forcing its way through the old order produces a more intense reaction. So it attracts and it repels at the same time. The church grows and is persecuted at the same time. But that's okay. Because we're, we're not responsible for outcomes. People have agency. People have free will. People have dignity. And salvation is, is some kind of mysterious mix that I, for one, cannot fully explain. It is some combo of human choice and the work of God's spirit. And our job is not to go out and, and like, save people, no, you know, no matter how, like, find a way that is surefire, 
or, or to seize power over people. Our job really is to go out and bear witness. Some will respond. Others won't. Now, in Greek, the word for witness is martus, which is where we get the word, anyone want to guess? Martyr. And it's not a coincidence, by the way, because in the first centuries, a witness and a martyr were like often synonymous. So for us, while literal death, thank God, is not a threat, it's not a legit threat, there is a kind of death involved in bearing witness to the gospel in our, in our day, in our time. It might be a death to your reputation. It was like being super cool and sophisticated. Maybe it's a death to other people's moral view of you. Maybe it's a death to relationships, people that, that just won't associate with you. Like once they find out you're a Christian, they just, they're like, well, I'm out, and they cut you off. There's a possible death to your career ambitions. Like in your work, it may very well be that what is required to move up the corporate ladder is just incompatible with allegiance to Jesus. I talk to you guys. I mean, I hear about this stuff. But as, as hard as whatever it is that may need to die for us to follow Jesus, it's a small price to pay. Like it is nothing compared to Perpetua and millions of our brothers and sisters down through history and even right now around the world. But it's a small price to pay, not because it really is a small, the cost is small. What the scripture writers tell us is it's small compared to the joy of knowing Christ. As Paul said, um, said of all that he lost in becoming a, a witness to the gospel, and by the way, Paul lost a lot like, right, he was, he, was, he was wealthy, he was highly educated, he was deeply respected. He had climbed his social and corporate ladder to the very top. He was, he was one of the most prominent Pharisees. And yet, he writes those famous words that many of you have heard again and again. He writes, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I don't know about you. I don't know that I could actually say that. Like, I, I want to participate with Jesus. I want to participate in Jesus' life and all the blessings and all the easy stuff. Like, sign me up for that, Right? But the cross, this is the thing. The cross always comes before the resurrection. Good Friday always comes before Easter. Death to self comes before life in the kingdom. And it's simple math, just like pros and cons, if we see the kingdom as it is. Like maybe later get out a piece of paper and just line up reputation and pleasure and money and a a rising career path or whatever against Christ and life in his kingdom. 
The scripture writers insist it doesn't even compare. Father in heaven, I am so thankful to be a part of this family of people trying to figure out what it is to live your way together. I'm so, so thankful. And I just think about so many of the people in this room right now or that I've even talked with over the last week or two in different groups that I've been in that have known you, have come to know you because of a relationship or several relationships with people here that have, that have lived your way and they have bared witness and they have said, I don't have all the answers I can't explain everything perfectly, but I'm encountering something that is very real. Come with me. Experience it with me. There are so many people in this room and online and in various places that have come to know you because of that. And God, I want us to, I want us to see more and more and more of it. And so I pray that you would equip us and just prepare us to be people who in this, this time right now we're the world is becoming more and more hostile to faith. I just pray that you would help us to learn what it is to apprentice under you and to go into our world with joy and to go into our world with kindness and love and live love day after day after day, wherever it is we find ourselves, with whoever that we're with. And when we're rubbing shoulders with people that don't know you, I pray that you would help us to paint a picture of who you are because of how we live. And if they ask why, we're willing to share our experience of you with them. God, would you use us to draw people into life with you? Would you use us? Amen.